Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. The radio programme and podcast about Ireland's maritime development, our relationship with the sea around this island nation and our maritime culture, history and tradition. Tom McSweeney here and since our May edition, the first state contracts for offshore wind farms have been allocated to the Scherder Rocks project off Galway's coast, the Dublin Array, the Codling Wind Park off Wicklow, and the North Irish Sea Array off the coast of Dublin, Meath and Louth. The next stage is for those to obtain planning approval. But while there is general acceptance of the importance of this alternative energy development, there are issues arising which need to be addressed. One is adequate consultation with other marine users and where the turbines will exactly be placed. The fishing industry is increasingly concerned, particularly on the Irish Sea, and there is the issue of spatial maritime squeeze. John Lynch is Chief Executive of the Irish South and East Fish Producers Organisation, which has boats fishing out of Dunmore East, Kilmore Quay and other ports. At this stage, they need to uh, be presenting their turbine, proposed turbine layout to the fishing industry and as um, they had previously stated in our in correspondence that the fishing industry should have an input at this stage into the actual location of the turbines within the site. We're, we were always promised that we would have an input at this stage but I mean nobody has offered us this yet. But picking the site is one thing but picking the actual location of the turbines is another thing you know. The fishing industry has been offered nothing, nothing. We like we like massive spatial squeeze, especially in the Irish Sea. These phase one projects that have got through the RS option, they have to engage properly, you know, with with the fishing industry. They need to have meaningful engagement now with the fishing industry. Now we're having engagement, but I mean they're not willing to discuss any of the issues. You know, the fishing industry is more than willing to negotiate, or more than willing to talk to these people and, and try and find a way forward. John Lynch, Chief Executive of the Irish South and East Fish Producers Organisation. The marine spatial squeeze is an issue that will have to be addressed, but there is no evidence yet of government understanding of this issue. Indeed, it does seem a little incongruous that the government has assigned all maritime planning to the Department of Housing, which doesn't have the best record for dealing with its main responsibility, the housing crisis. Nowhere is there any place for the Department of the Marine. No one has been able to tell me how many wind turbines there will be around the Irish coast. Some estimates have put the number at hundreds. Last month on Maritime Ireland, we heard from Galway about developing maritime education in national schools there. From West Cork now comes a suggestion that the centenary of the first Irish circumnavigation of the world, sailed by the legendary Conor O'Brien from Foynes Island in the Shannon Estuary, should be used to advance the marine sphere in the educational curriculum. He was honoured at the Baltimore Wooden Boats Festival, revived last month after a four-year break due to the effects of COVID. A big number of all types of wooden boats were there, from around the Irish coast and from the UK. 
O'Brien's original island, which served Falkland Island transport needs for many years before being returned to Ireland, was there, and it sailed in company with a replica of the boat he circumnavigated on Searsha, both products of Hagerty's boatyard near Baltimore. One of the festival organisers, Mary Jordan, suggests Conor O'Brien as an icon for maritime education. One of the reasons why we're so pleased that there's such an interest, a growing interest in the wooden boats is that we really, like you, really feel that our maritime history should be included in our education system. And we'd really like to push for maybe even taking Conor O'Brien's iconic trip around the world as one module in our history in schools at all levels of our education could be the start of including our maritime history. There is a great tradition around the islands in West Cork of these boats. That's right. Obviously, all of these boats started out as work boats. You know, the Long Island macro boats, the Hare Island lobster boats, then the bigger vessels that were, were used to cross the Atlantic up the Mediterranean and wherever. And then we do also uh, reenact a pilot race because traditionally people on Cape Clear would look out for sailing ships coming across the Atlantic and there'd be a race, a rowing race, out to the this sailing trading ship uh, to try and get on board first to get the job as the pilot, to pilot the vessel up the Mediterranean Georgia's Channel up to the North Sea, wherever it was going. And the island people, Cape Clear people, had so much knowledge of all those waters. Uh, It was an important income as well for the island. Mary Jordan of the Baltimore Wooden Boats Festival and a suggestion to develop marine education. Jakub Zemkage believes that he was born to sail, as a result of which his focus has always been on the sea. He's from Poland, been a long time in Ireland and lives in Ahada, a village overlooking the northeastern corner of Cork Harbour. There, at the age of 50, he's building a yacht to race around the world in. And that will be in the Mini Globe Race, Minis meaning small. One designed yachts of 19 feet in length, called the Globe 5.8, self-built by amateurs. The SV Bye-Bye is 2.2 metres in the beam that's wide and with 1.2 metres headroom below decks. I'm a sailor, like every sailor's dream is to circumnavigate the world. But all the sailors know that that's quite expensive and you need to sacrifice a lot of time and the money to do that. So uh, Don McIntyre, who runs the Golden Globe race, he came up with the idea of having the race for amateur sailors and for those who who don't have a big budget. So the boat is small and you can build this yourself. It's designed specially to circumnavigate the world and to be built by the amateur builders. So that means you don't have to be a, a 20 years experienced boat builder. It's not very expensive. There is no kind of financial uh, barriers to to be in the race. 
this is how this is why chosen also um this race the circumnavigation is in the six legs and is going through the trade wind uh, passage which is basically around the equator we don't go to the southern ocean so we have a uh, we have uh, some stops in between that all looked uh, quite maybe not easy but affordable for me and so this is why i decided to go for it the race is going to take over a year in its different stages why would you want to be going solo on your own for that amount of time when i was a kid and uh, i used to sail dinghies that time the sailing wasn't cool and all my friends were busy with the making the motorbikes going to the disco so i had no one to to be with me when i'm sailing so i was struggling for the company that time but also i kind of get used to it and now i'm in the stage that i prefer to be on my own i love being on my own and i think i feel good being on my own so that's going to be a big test well you're going to be on your own in a boat which is about 23 24 feet you you're building her at the moment describe the boat to me the construction okay the construction of the boat is actually is 19 feet boat but it's a model a motor design so the beam is 2.2 meter and it's 1.4 headroom inside but uh, it's built based on the timber frames uh, planked with the plywood marine plywood and uh, laminated with the epoxy uh, resin uh, the idea is that the boat is quite light. It has a keel of 200 kilograms, which gives the ratio of about 20% uh, to the boat, which is not, not a much, but with the supplies and myself, that, that, that's going to be uh, more than enough. Boat is light, so that means it's a very dry boat. If you take any boat, even the big boats, if you take them to the ocean, they are small. You've shown me that you have a lot of the equipment already acquired. The mast, the rigging, the standing rigging. The costs involved in getting sales, do you, you, need, you need sponsorship for that? Of course. Um, when I started to think about this, I thought is I going to be, oh, I can build the boat in 5,000 euros and then equip this. I can make the mast, I can make everything. But it's not that easy. To be the part of the race, to, to join the race, you have to build the boat with the designed standards and everything is monitored. I, I have to run the blog, picture every part of my job and document every type of the materials that I'm using. So I could buy the, like if I use the boat for myself, I could buy the any masts. I can use the mast from the somedings, but to, to, to race around the globe, I had to buy the special mast that can survive this. And organizers, they have chosen uh, two manufacturers. So I had no choice. I had to buy one of those. And obviously, at this moment, the whole budget is going to be around 50,000. But luckily, um, there's some good people willing to help. And as I'm getting some help, I'm kind of putting the money into this and to save save the time to get the boat ready quickly enough 
I'm buying everything advanced. And when you say, and you're emphasizing building a lot yourself, you obviously have experience from working yourself that allows you to build. Um, I never built a boat in my life. Uh, it's quite challenging. I know how to use the tools, a jigsaw and saw and the sander and everything. But building the boat, it's a little bit more than just using the tools. It, it's lots about knowing where to use the tools and how to use them. But as I said before, the boat was designed to be easy built. There is no like bending steam, bending materials. Uh, this, the shape is pretty much straightforward. The, the cuts. There were some uh, some challenging moments, but nothing really, really very difficult. You're from Poland. You've been in Ireland a few years, and you've even trained in the Mar the Marine College and the Fisheries College in Poland. So you've had quite a lot of maritime interests before deciding on going in this race. Yeah, I I like to say my, myself. Um, I was born to sail, but forced to work. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, since I remember, I always wanted to, to, to be on the water. But somehow I was doing everything not to be on the water. <laughs> Finally, when, uh, when uh, my wife asked me to divorce, and I also divorced my business, so uh, I passed my 50, <laughs> and I said, now is the time. And when I was reading about this race, and apparently the designer who was appointed to design the boat is from my hometown, I said, okay, there's no more excuses. <laughs> let's let's do it. And you, your interest came from your father who, first of all, had a boat and you were actually sailing dinghies, small dinghies, and, and using them to cruise on. Yes. Um, my father started living on the he he was moved from the highlands by by the by the by the by the water let's say quite close to the seashore and he he started to be interested in uh, in uh, in a sailing so he built a boat i remember when being small child i was helping helping him then when i was in the marine college i learned a lot of stuff so i was splicing all the lines and the steel ropes and then uh, we were sewing the sails so i was always with the some kind of a jobs on the on the boat sailing sailing the, our dinghy for the whole summers i couldn't dream about sailing on the sea i thought maybe sometime but but it was so far away uh, when the communists broke down, we we could get our passports, so we start traveling. This is why the Polish people are traveling a lot, not because they're seeking the work or better, work or better life. Like 50 years, they could not travel abroad, and when they got the passport, they just traveled. <laughs> um, I've been living in Ireland for 20 years now. And uh, I did lots of sailing. Uh, I improved my, my education in Ireland. Uh, I did lots of uh, boat deliveries to, to Galicia, Scotland, and around Ireland. Your first visit to Ireland on a boat was actually on a tall ship? 
Yes, as as uh, being a good student in the Marine College, I got a prize, and the prize was two months on the on the tall ship. So we went from uh, from Poland, going through Baltic Sea, Sea and the Kiel Channel, and then uh, North Sea English Channel to Northern Ireland. Then we sailed down to Dublin, Cork, and the Kings Island. It was the 1993, I think. And we are only single tall ship at the time. And amongst your accomplishments, you tried fishing. Yes, when I, when I came to Ireland, I said, okay, I'm in the normal country now, so I presume that I can get any job I want. So uh, I said, I always wanted to be on the water. So I joined the, the fishing industry. I was uh, working on the fishing trawler in Union Hall. Uh, it was the toughest job I ever had. I remember being on the deck 48 hours, being so tired. Finally, you get a one hour to sleep and I couldn't sleep because of pain of, of my hands. <laughs> and I was laughing to myself because it was some extraordinary uh, uh, experience. And there was the time that none of my hands were, were um, healthy and every finger was so painful only two of them were weren't but same time i was feeling that i'm in my environment i'm in the place that i supposed to be <laughs> where i belong to that love you have for the sea is amazing it really drives you it does it does like i feel much safer on the water than on the street uh, I could jump in the any waves in the sea anytime. It's like, I don't know, I can't even describe this. I feel odd anywhere I am, except the sea. So when you left fishing, you worked at other jobs then before you decided that you want to sail around the world? Yes, um, I had to leave the fishing industry, unfortunately, because uh, that time I was making the decision to get married and start the family. And obviously you can either be a seaman or family man. So uh, I started the family, I started uh, uh, different jobs, I started my own business in the building industry. Uh, people say it was quite success, su successful and uh, I was quite well recognized with the, with the, with, with the, with the window business in, in Cork and areas, but it wasn't my world as my idea is to finish this boat quickly, start sailing it. And then while I'm sailing, I will be making the decision what I really need, where to put the table, where to put the cooker and like all the other logistics. One of the things you have to do to qualify for this around the world race is 500 nautical miles on your own. Uh, ideally, my initial plan was to have a boat on the water end of June. However, if I get this in the August, I'll be happy. And August and the whole autumn, I will be sailing. Then um, winter 23, 24, um, I'm going to lift the boat up again and do the final work. And then 20, 2024 spring training again, uh, 2024 summer, some trips, bigger trip offshore to get this qualifier and 
if everything is okay, I like to deliver both next year to uh, Spain. It's quite a, a demanding schedule. It is, but uh, I decided uh, just to do it. The determination of Jakub just to do what he believes in. He hopes to launch Bye Bye in August and then start selling her. Look up svbibisvbibi.com for more. And they also feature him in the new Maritime Ireland Quarterly Journal, published for the first time this month as a supplement in the June edition of the Marine Times. Now Anton O'Callaghan has a roundup of maritime news around the Irish coast. A yacht that is older than the Fastnet Rock Lighthouse is going to sail around that iconic West Cork rocky outpost this month. The Leila is a Hoth 17, part of the oldest fleet of classic boats in the world. It was built in 1898 by the renowned boat builder John Hilditch at Carrickfergus. She was already six years old when the Fastnet Rock Lighthouse went into operation in 1904. The first five that were built are still in existence. The Leila is one of 13 yachts of the 17's fleet which plan to mark their 125th year of existence by sailing a circumnavigation of Carberry's 100 Isles from June 24th to 30th which will include Skull, Crookhaven, Fastnet, Cape Clear Island and Baltimore. When they were originally launched in the spring of 1898 at Carrickfergus, they had their first race from there to Hoth, a distance of 90 miles. Another classic historic boat that is not faring so well is the historic Arklow trading vessel, the De Wadden, which is to be demolished at the Merseyside Maritime Museum in Liverpool. The three-masted auxiliary schooner is the last of its kind to operate on the Irish Sea. The museum bought the ship in 1984 and it has been dry docked in canning graving docks since. Though regular conservation work was carried out, exposed to the weather, it has deteriorated beyond sustainable cost. The museum say there is no other option and that it is reviewing what parts of the ship it might be possible to retain. Dewadden was built for the Netherlands Steamship Company in 1917. After World War I, she was sold to Richard Hall from Arklow and used as part of his merchant sail vessel fleet until 1961, carrying bulk cargo from Liverpool to various Irish ports. She was captained for 20 years by Richard's son, Victor, before being sold for use as a leisure charter fishing vessel in Scotland. After being sold to Arklow, Dewadden carried bulk cargoes, grain, china clay, mineral ores and coal from Liverpool and the River Mersey to various Irish ports. During the Second World War, she provided a vital lifeline carrying supplies to Ireland. The Nautical Institute, the international organisation for maritime professionals, is going to admit fishermen to membership. Headquartered in the United Kingdom, it was established in 1971 and has 7,000 members in 100 countries. The fishing community is important to all mariners and the wider global industry, the Institute says, so we will be working to understand how we can improve safety and effectiveness in this sector. A jellyfish, which had mostly been known to favour Ross Lair in County Wexford for a visit, has been popping up at locations from Lockfoyle in Derry down to West Cork and up the east coast to Dublin. These are barrel jellyfish, which can weigh up to two kilos, look a bit scary according to some descriptions, but don't sting according to marine experts. Translucent in colour, they look a bit like cauliflowers, have eight oral arms or tentacles 
and thousands of little mouths to feed on plankton. Lots of them were regularly reported off Rosslare in previous years. It's not clear why they are now appearing around more parts of the coast. The MV Shingle White-hulled but with increasing rusting evident, which has been in Dublin port for nearly ten years since it was seized by Gardaí and Customs officers in 2014 in a smuggling prevention operation, is being considered for the creation of an artificial reef by sinking it in Killala Bay on the west coast between Mayo and Sligo. The Revenue Commissioners offered it free of charge, presumably to get it off their hands, and the Groinia Whale Sub-Aqua Club in Ballina has expressed interest to use it as an artificial reef that would attract marine life and divers. But they would need €80,000 for the project to get it towed to the western coastline, permission from the Department of the Marine to sink it and support from Mayo and Sligo County Councils. Latest heard about the ship is that it has been moved to New Ross, apparently for some work to be done on it. And that's a look at what's happening around the Irish coastline. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. In the lifeboat service, long-serving RNLI Aran Island's coxswain John O'Donnell retired at the end of May after 21 years saving lives at sea on the West Coast. He's been coxswain there since 2003 and his son Kiron is continuing the family involvement with the Aran Island lifeboat. Unity in the fishing industry has been challenging to achieve amongst its various sectors. But A. O'Donnell, chief executive of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation, says that at meetings in Brussels in the past month, with senior members of the European Union's DJ Mara cabinet, which makes decisions about the industry, seems to have a lot of admiration, and that's widespread around EU level, he thinks, for the unity of voice presented by the Irish fishing industry. The entire industry at the moment is in jeopardy, and you know we have paid a very high price. Brexit was the culmination of that, and we've never been dealt with appropriately by the EU in relation to that. So we do need to have more unity. We need to get an agreement around what the key issues are. We need to go out there and represent our industry as a whole. And in alignment with that, we need to have outcomes also of support administratively and from the department at political level from our own authority so that we're all of the one voice. This would be an informal unity of opinion, I take it, because previous attempts many, many years ago did lead to a short-lived one organisation representing all groups. We are working fairly well together, and particularly there's a strong relationship with between the catching sector and the processing sector at representation level. We do have a serious responsibility as representatives to represent uh, our sector, to communicate, to engage, and to try and deliver. So that United Voice, it's still being developed, but it has been emanating in the last year or so. Are you satisfied, A, that the public is hearing and seeing a more uh, consistent voice from the fishing industry? Because for many years, I suppose such a voice wasn't noted in public terms? Well, a lot of effort has gone in between various organisations to articulate our view and put it forward. So there's a lot more activity now across the organisation that's the social media level and in the media, in the national media as well, you know. That needs to be maintained, that's an investment in our future, and that's about getting support at public level to what we're trying to achieve. 
And you're confident, obviously, from what you say, that that is being seen, heard and noted where it matters across in Europe? It's certainly, there's an the, the ongoing monitoring of what we're putting out there in the media. It's important to our European, our colleagues and the other member states. It's very important to the team at technical level who negotiate on behalf of Europe and on behalf of Ireland with third countries. So it's a very important aspect of what we do. Eo Donnell, Chief Executive of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation. And some good news to finish with. The campaign by the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society to have three of their members honoured, which I reported in our February edition, has been successful. Declan McGonagall, curator of the Art and Engagement Programme at Dublin Port, tells me it has commissioned portraits of Michael de Bishop Donnelly, the artist Sue Ann Moore, Patrick Fatzer Curry, the artist Tara Kearns, and William Deans, the artist Margaret M. Cullen, and their local artists in Dublin Port area. The paintings are to be displayed in a port building, with the actual location to be finished shortly. Colin McCaffrey of Sea Scouts Ireland from Malahide in Dublin, who we featured in our April edition, has been chosen as Irish Sailing's Volunteer of the Year. And, as I said earlier, the first edition of the new publication, Maritime Ireland Quarterly Journal, is published this month as a supplement in the June edition of the Marine Times, another advance for coverage of the marine sector. I hope you can read it. And so we end this edition of Maritime Ireland, sound production by Justin Marr. The programme email is tomaxweenymaritimeireland.gmail.com. That's tomaxweenymaritimeireland.gmail.com. Phone and text 0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197. The programme website is at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie. That's maritimeirelandradioshow.ie. And we're on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at Tomac Sweeney. Until our next edition with the usual wish of fair sailing, thank you for listening and being part of the maritime community. Thank you.